0: And we're actually going to do two chapters this week. We're going to do Judges chapter 17, it's short. And we're also going to do chapter 18. It's all about the same story. It's a little vignette um, narrative of things that took place. And this actually took place earlier in Judges. Okay, so, you know, often the scriptures don't follow things concurrently in time. This is something that took place earlier in Judges. This didn't happen subsequent to Samson, who we just finished. It happened prior to Samson. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read just verses 1 through 4 of chapter 17, because we're going to go through verse by verse through these two chapters. The scripture reads, Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me, I took it. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother, then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. The title of my sermon this morning is Syncretism and Societal Ruin. Syncretism and Societal Ruin. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks and praise to you for this time that we have in your word. We ask, O Lord, that you bless the reading of your word. And Lord, we give thanks and praise to you that you have preserved it so we can know your ways and your thoughts so that we can learn from others who've lived before us in their strengths and in their failures so we know how to live right by you, O God. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you bless this sermon and use it for good in the hearts and minds of the hearers. That they might be able to more faithfully serve you in the earth. That they might be able to more easily discern good and evil. And I ask for these things, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Could be seated. So in verses 1 through 4, Micah had stolen 1,100 shekels of silver from his own mother. And you understand that was a huge amount of money. Massive amount of money. At that time, a laborer got 10 shekels for a whole year of work. 10 shekels. And Micah had stolen from his own mother 1,100 shekels of silver. That would actually come out to 28 pounds of silver. This was a huge amount of money. When it was stolen, his mother put a curse on whoever stole the silver, as we saw there in verse 2, Micah mentioning that, yeah... I heard with my own ears the curse that you put on whoever took the silver, and it was me. So Micah had heard her make the curse, he was clearly frightened by the curse, and confesses to his mother that he took it. She responds at the end of verse 2 by blessing her son. See it there at the end of verse 2. May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. This was clearly an attempt to undo the curse that she had called for because she didn't want it to be upon her son. In verse 3, his mother claims that she had, quote-unquote, wholly dedicated the silver for the Lord to her son Micah. So Micah gives her the silver back, and in verse 4, she takes 200 of the shekels to show her devotion to the Lord, and she uses it to make a graven image. She uses 200 of the shekels. 200 the shekels of silver, to make an, a, a graven image to express her devotion to the Lord. To make an idol. Something clearly against God's law and word. And as it was for her son, the graven image was then placed in Micah's house, as we see at the end of verse 4, and the molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. So, Micah's mom's not doing well, and Micah adds to his mother's sin. And in verse 5, it says, The man Micah had a shrine, and made an ephod, and household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons, who became his priest. So here we have what we call syncretism. Syncretism is the combining of different forms of belief or practice. And here Micah was taking a little bit of what the Lord teaches and a little bit of his own religious machinations and the religion of the day, and he blends them all together. That's syncretism. And syncretism has been seen down through the history of man, down through the history of the Jews, down through the history of Christianity. Many examples of syncretism. And it has been expressed in a thousand different forms. Verse 6 sums up what has happened here by saying this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This was lawlessness, what Micah's mom had done and what Micah had done. And the writer of Judges is pointing out it's taking place because there is no king and because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They were in rebellion to the Lord in doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. This was lawlessness. Everyone knows the truth of Scripture. Who knows the truth of Scripture knows it was lawlessness. Now let me make a point here. Scholars point out that Judges consists of three parts. So listen up, don't get glassy-eyed. Scholars point out that Judges consists of three parts, and perhaps there were three separate authors, or just one. The first part is verse, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 5, wherein the failure of the various tribes to dislodge the wicked from their regions is detailed. You may recall that, go way back. The second part is two six to the end of chapter 16, and the third part is chapters 17 through 21, which we've now entered. And as I told you at the end of our last sermon on Samson, these two vignettes, found in chapters 17 and 18, which we're covering today, and in chapters 19 and 20, happened early on historically before Samson and the others. They are used by the author in the third part to show the need for the monarchy, for a king. Hence the thing, there was no king in Israel in those days. Samuel may have been the author, but most most scholars believe the author wrote during the monarchy of Saul. That's when the book of Judges was written. Some think Samuel may have been the author, but we do not know. And again, this author wanted men to see the need for a king hence the saying here in verse 6, where it says there was no king in Israel, is stated again in 18 verse 1 of Judges, again in 19 verse 1 of Judges, and again in 21 verse 25 of Judges. The author wanted men to see the religious and moral decay of society because there was no king in Israel. Now you may recall, listen to me now, you may recall I said to you in an earlier sermon that when decentralized, smaller governments become corrupt, people look to a large central government to correct the problem. And the converse is true. When a large central government becomes corrupt, people look to smaller, decentralized governments to correct the problem. Here you had a lack of government. Anarchy was on the scene. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was a lack of law and order. The people were in rebellion to God. And so they were looking for a strong central figure, a king, a central government to repair the situation. And the writer of Judges most likely lived during the monarchy, and so he placed these things in there about there being no king in Israel. So when there's problems with the large central government, people look for decentralized governments. And when there's problems with the small decentralized governments, they look for a large central government. Ultimately, however, understand, no form of government provides peace and justice if the people themselves are not submitted to the law of God and the ways of his word. People ask me that all the time. What's the best form of government of men, Matt? And I always tell them, there is no best form. Any form of government can be corrupted by men, including a constitutional representative republic, which we live in our day. Any form of government can be corrupted because of the nature of man. He's wicked and in need of a savior. So it's extremely important to understand how important it is that we as people, when it comes to self-government, have our lives governed according to the law and word of God. When it comes to our families, governed according to the law and word of God. When it comes to church government, governed according to the law and word of God. When it comes to civil government, governed according to the law and word of God. Extremely important. And no form of government provides peace and justice, no civil government does, if the people themselves are not submitted to the law of God and the ways of his word. Hence the needs of the pulpits. The pulpits have been whores. They haven't done what they're supposed to do. in instructing people from the word of God regarding civil government matters. They rarely talk about matters of sin, morality, righteousness. The whole thing's a mess. And we have a nation in abject rebellion against God and it's falling apart. No brainer. So anyways, that was the problem here during the era of the judges. The people were in rebellion to the Lord and syncretism abounded. Like we just saw with Micah's mom and Micah. Syncretism brings decadence and decay to theological thought, which in turn brings decadence and decay to society and to the governments of men. If you for- If you forget everything else I said here this morning, please remember that, what I just said. Anybody want to repeat that back to me word for word? I wouldn't even want to repeat it back to me word for word, so I wrote it down. Syncretism brings decadence and decay to theological thought, which in turn brings decadence and decay to society and to the governments of men. And so we see this in America in our own day. What was happening there in Judges back in that day. Our narrative continues. Look at verses 7 and 8, and it says, Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, and the family of Judah, he was a Levite and was staying there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. So here we have a young minister, if you will, this young priest. Um, He's at least from the tribe of Levi. We don't know if he's a priest, but he could qualify as such, who is looking for a place to minister, place to go. doesn't really know what exactly he wants to do. Verse 9 goes on, and it says, And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? So he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah and I am on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said to him, Dwell with me, and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. Micah wanted to upgrade and refine his syncretism. Rather than his own son playing the priest... He now could procure an actual Levite who came from Bethlehem and everything. Remember, Bethlehem was one of the 48 cities Moses had set aside to be Levitical cities. In verses 11 through 13, it goes on and says, "...then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest." and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, "Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest." So the Levite was good with all this. He could ply his trade, he could be a priest. The money sounded good, it was fair. It was fair pay. He had a place to be, a place of ease and prominence, if you will. I'm a priest. He apparently had no problem with the odd setup of Micah with his shrine, his ephod, and household idols. He could overlook that. And Micah was happy, as verse 13 says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as a priest. He, like many in American Christianity today, viewed God as like a genie in a bottle, like a rabbit's foot. For you young people, what's a rabbit's foot? A rabbit's foot was something when I was a boy, half the kids walked around with. It was a good luck charm. It was like a genie in a bottle. It was like a talisman of sorts. Someone who exists for my good. And that's how most American Christians are. They view God as someone who exists for them, rather than they existing to bring glory to him. Now, the narrative moves into chapter 18. We're continuing the story with Micah and this Levite. And verses 1 through 3 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. There it is again. And in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtol, to spy out the land and search it. They said to them, go, search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. While they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? So if you look on a map geographically where the tribe of Dan was, it wasn't a hard place. It was a difficult area to keep the land. They had had some difficulty. They had failed in driving out all the pagan peoples as God had instructed them, so this had been an ongoing problem. And so now they're just sending these guys out to be spies to find a place where they can go to move at least part of the tribe of Dan over to to a safer place, over to a better place. And while they're traveling, they come across Micah's house, they lodge there, and they get to know this little Levite priest dude there, and they ask him questions, who brought you here, what are you doing in this place, what do you have here? And it says in verse 4, he said to them, thus and so Micah did for me, he has hired me, and I have become his priest. Notice he says, Micah, quote-unquote, hired me. This is why he had no problem with the shrine and the ephod and the household idols. You know, Jesus spoke of hirelings, and here's what he said. Turn with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Here's what Jesus had to say about hirelings. I could do a whole sermon about hirelings because it's spoken about in various places of Scripture, I'll try to keep it short, but I may fail. John chapter 10, verse 11 Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. it's a hireling. That's what this young Levite was. He was a hireling. And the hireling only cares about his pay, about his money. And notice the Levite was like your average American pastor and minister. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 18. Of judges. It says, So they said to him, Please inquire of God, these five spies are asking the Levite, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The presence of the Lord will be with you on your way. Like any good minister or pastor in America, the young Levite tells them smooth words. He tells them, peace, peace, when there is no peace. He says, the presence of the Lord be with you. While as we continue in the narrative, we'll see, they were going off to do evil and to do wrong. Turn with me to Micah, the book of Micah, chapter 3, verse 5. I want you to look at what it says there. This is the prophet Micah, not the dude here in Judges 17 and 18, Micah. Turn with me to Micah, chapter 3, verse 5, and look what it says. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him who buts nothing into their mouths these prophets were like too many of the men who fill America's pulpits today notice how it says they quote chant peace while they chew with their teeth unquote but they quote prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths unquote what is this speaking of It is speaking of the fact that they were hirelings, mere prostitutes who were doing what they did for pay, utter whores, the bidding of the state, the bidding of those in positions of wealth and business, if you look at the context completely. Look what it says in verse 11 of chapter 3 of the book of Micah. Also about the prophets, it says, Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. So the scripture says here that they teach for pay, they divine for money. This is exactly what the Levite has been doing. He's been the priest for Micah for pay. He's now done a little divination work. How's it going to turn out for these five spies? Of course, he comes up with the usual thing false prophets always come up with. Oh, it's going to be great. It's like the little bread box that you buy at the Christian bookstore, right? Pull out a verse. Did you ever notice they're all positive verses? There's never a negative verse that you pull out of the... That's how American Christianity is. That's how American churchmen are. Because when you live that way, you're liked. And people think well of you. And this problem is found throughout the history of the Lord's people, men who want to be ministers for mere pay. Their fealty is not to the Lord, but to their bellies. These preachers love their soft cushions, their easy living, the praises of men, the aggrandizement of their egos. If you gave to their false words of peace, peace, they loved you. But if you did not, so they could continue to utter false words... In other words, you put nothing into their mouths, they prepared war against you. That's what it says here in the prophet Micah. They were like the ministers of our day who display utter indifference to the evil in our land, all the while playing their smooth song, saying their smooth words, their pleasant song of personal peace and piety. Just like the media in our nation putting in front of the people what they want them to think is important while justice is perverted and the Lord's law and word is impugned. The churchmen are the same way. Don't look at that. They keep the people preoccupied with their religious hamster wheel, busy doing their religious observances while indifferent towards those things which are dear to the Lord's heart. That is a huge problem in American Christianity. There has been a divorce between doctrine and life within American Christianity. They keep things an inch deep and a hundred miles wide. They assure the people the Lord wants them rich, fat, and happy. There is no cry to repentance. They have literally reshaped Christianity to the mindset that God exists for me, not that they exist for God. They downplay doctrine, and they just live like the world with a Jesus veneer to their life. They enthrall the people with a theory of Christianity, but want nothing to do with the practice of Christianity. True Christian doctrine must lead to Christian lives, to Christian living. He didn't just save us from something, namely sin and his wrath, but he also saved us for something, namely to serve him in the earth and do those things which are dear to his heart. When these pastors see the injustice and immorality being dispensed throughout the land, they say nothing of it. Virtual silence. They have no interest in bringing all areas of life into conformity with his rule. Do you think you can fill a nation with innocent blood and escape God's righteous judgment? And yet the pulpit say very little about the slaughter of the preborn, and most say nothing at all. We live in the midst of a nation of people whose countenances witness against them, who declare their sin as Sodom and do not hide it. And yet the pulpits say nothing of this evil. Virtually nothing. When homosexual marriage came out of Siena, that's it. Pulpits are going to come alive. Righteousness. Fire. Nah. Silence. That's what we got. Silence. Or worse, we got Christian men, churchmen actually helping the people to accommodate themselves to the new more. They say nothing of the evil. Rather, they preach peace. They preach smooth or pleasant things. Oh, there are some faithful ministers in America today. There are. But that is what the vast majority of America's ministers are like in our day. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Most churches exist for one purpose in America, And that's to help the people of God accommodate themselves to the mores of the world. American Christianity helps the state affirm the secularization of America in the minds of Christians. American Christianity also affirms the drunken stupor of materialism in the minds of Christians. So there's no confronting of idols, no resistance to tyrants, because everybody has a piece of the pie, their hand in the cookie jar. Wouldn't want to upset that. The whoredom here, brothers and sisters, is huge. Whores fill America's pulpits. They are whores who long ago decided they love the praises of man more than faithfulness to Christ. That is a problem in America. And we see it all here with this little young Levite priest dude. The verse continues on. Our narrative continues on in verse 7. It says, So the five men departed and went to Laish. They saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. There were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians, and they had no ties with anyone. These guys had ill intent in mind. We found a good place, and the people Have no ties with anyone else, and there's no ruler here that's going to put us down. Then the spies came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtol, and their brethren said to them, What is your report? So they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and indeed it is very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. When you go, you will come to a secure people and a large land, for God has given it into our hands. See? The little priest made him feel like God's with you. Even while they're going to do evil, do murder, do wrong. Because the little Levite dude wanted to be liked. He wanted to always say smooth, pleasant. Ah, that smile. Little words. God is with us. He's given it into our hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. And 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Eshtol, armed with weapons of war. Then they went up and encamped in Kirath-Yerim in Judah. Therefore they call that place Meneh-Dan. To this day, there it is, west of Kirath-Yerim, And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image? Now therefore consider what you should do. These are bad men. They're going to steal. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men, armed with their weapons of war, who were of the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. The priests stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. The hireling was there, standing there. When these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols and the molded image, the priest, the little Levite dude, said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Be quiet, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? That's what he says to him. And look how the young Levite responds. So the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod, the household idols and the carved image, and took his place among the people. His heart was glad because he would now have bigger numbers. A whole tribe and family rather than one man's household. This probably meant that the pay would be better too. This was clearly a step up for this young Levite priest. He was climbing the corporate religious ladder. And as a churchman, I can tell you, there is a religious corporate ladder. It exists in all denominations, in all religious Christian organizations. And if you say and do what they want done, you climb it. And if you don't, you're pushed off the ladder and splatter on the ground. That's how it works. And I've watched it all my life. And let me tell you, young men, Every man at some point in his life has a situation come his way where he has to make a decision to go along with men and their praises or to be faithful and true to Christ. Every man has that moment in their life. And the vast majority go with the praises of men. The vast majority But if you stand true to Christ, he will use you in a wholly different fashion with the days he's given you here in the earth. Your life will be marvelous. A thousand times better than the shekels and gems that the religious corporate ladder offers you. When I was a young minister, one of the things that bothered me in the denomination I was in, when the churchmen would get together once every three months... All the talk was about money. All the talk was about numbers, about new building programs. Money and numbers. That's what they all talked about. It was grievous to listen to. And the more money you got, the better deal you got for yourself. And the bigger church you had, the more aggrandizement you had for yourself. It was disturbing to watch. They told me once I got involved in the effort for the preborn, you have to decide, Matt, either to do this abortion thing or preach. You can't do both. That's absolutely not true. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. It's not an either or. Defending the preborn has brought me more opportunities to point men to Christ than anything. And I was big on evangelism. They taught me to keep things light. Humor's important. Don't get too deep. Keep things shallow for the people. They run their places like moose clubs where you fill out a little piece of paper and then you get logged into some little sphere of the little moose club. And then, you know, people come around and, like, bother you because they want you to keep coming, okay? And they give you a little spot somewhere. so They see you have any kind of ambition so that you, you don't want to leave because now you got your spot of ambition. Okay, no. You're like, gosh, he seems pretty. (laughs) I'm just telling you what I've seen, okay? And when I left the denomination, I felt the purity of God return, that call of God, the purity of it return upon my heart. It was huge. The difference was huge. Don't be bought. Don't allow anyone to buy you. Don't let the state be able to, why do you? You know, I have people actually write to me and tell me, God takes care of me through the state. I'm like, okay. Um, Man, how is that even possible? The state is buying you. With the shekels come the shackles. They're buying you. And don't let rich men buy you either. Men who have means, men who have money. You have to discern their character because the vast majority of them, they give you something because they want something. You know how many ministers I've talked to and church people I've talked to who because the rich guy in the church or the rich handful of guys in the church want everyone to wear a mask and to go along with the COVID-19 fiction and everything else? They go along with it because of that. They want to buy you. I've been offered big money in the past to move on, to do what other people want me to do. I reject it. Because it's meant to buy you, to own you, to be somebody else's boy. You must not allow that to happen. It's massively important to not allow that to happen. Our narrative goes on here in verse 21, and it says, Then they turned and departed and put the little ones, the livestock and the goods, in front of them. When they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan, so they turned around and said to Micah, What ails you, that you have gathered such a company? Is that how wicked people always are? They start a fight, and then they ask, act like, what's the problem? Or they play the victim, right? Because you respond. What ails you that you have gathered such a company? Micah gives them a good, smart answer. He said to them, you have taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and you have gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me, what ails you? Good, smart answer. And the children of Israel said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the children of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. These were not good men. These were not good men. These were bad men who now had a priest, aiding and abetting their evil. So they took the things which Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and went to Laish to a people quiet and secure and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. Murdered them all. Killed them. Burnt the city down. There was no deliver because it was far from Sidon And they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there, and they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan. This is the young Levite priest dude. Jonathan of Gershon. And they were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. This was a great evil. And in chapter 19, verse 1, we'll begin again with that refrain, There was no king in Israel as the author wanted them to see the state of things and to affirm the monarchy. Remember what I said. Syncretism brings decadence and decay to theological thought, which in turn brings decadence and decay to society and to the governments of men. That is what we see here with the book of Judges. And it's what we see in America today. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Praise you, O God. Father, we give thanks and we give praise to you. And we rejoice in you for your goodness to us, that you have redeemed us by the blood of your Son, that you have preserved your word so we know right from wrong, good from evil, injustice from justice. And Lord, we just ask and pray that we would live faithful and true to you. We live in the midst of a situation so similar to the days we just read about in the book of Judges. And living in such a time requires that we spend time in reading your word fellowshipping with those who love you and want to be true to you. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in confronting the evils, the idols, and the tyrants of our day. Lord, give each one strength of heart and strength of mind to do that, I pray. We look to you, O God, to do that. I ask that you watch over all these brothers and sisters, Father, that their hearts remain hungry for you, that they do right by you in their private lives, that they do right by you in their homes, that they do right by you in the marketplace. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. Put a fire in our hearts to live true to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.